Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy. I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter 34, Restorations. Getting close to the end here. Yeah, almost done. Three chapters left. All right, so we start this one with Althea. And we are woken up from her slumber along with her from Greg to Nira. And he's saying, hey, the captain wants to see you. So she's up immediately. Of course, she's still posing as Athel, the ship's boy who begged Greg, uh, Greg's father, uh, Tommy, Tanira. I have no idea what his name is. Yeah, Captain Tanira <laughs> in Candletown to take her on board. And so she's won her way on board. And they have stopped into a different port town now called Rinston. He's aboard the Ophelia, and pretty much everybody else is taking leave in Rinston right now. But she is emerging onto deck from sleep, getting up, ready to go, and then the oddness of the situation hits her. The captain was on wheel watch in port, and he'd sent the mate to fetch her. A terrible suspicion welled up in her. Ophelia had given away her secret. So she's pretty apprehensive at this point, kind of woken up from a slender in an odd situation with odd instructions and just very wary now. Right. And um, it's also mentioned that in this port town, everyone else had begged to go ashore uh, and she had begged to stay behind, pretending that lack of coin is why she wanted to stay. But mostly it was for the solitariness of not needing to be a boy for a little bit, it seems. Either way, she wanted to stay behind so that she could just stick on ship. So it's not necessarily a normal thing for people to want to stay behind, especially not the captain or the first mate. Right. So she spots the captain smoking his pipe by the figurehead, and her suspicion became certainty. The young sailor, of course, nearby would be Greg, uh, his son, and the first mate. And her heart is sinking into her belly, she says. She pauses. She straightens out her clothing best she can. She's going to approach this how she approached pretty much everything else. Uh, as a sailor aboard the other ships she's been on with a straight face, play her part, let them make the first moves, and then try to be honest but get her way out of <laughs> out of being embarrassed or being pushed off the ship or something like that. Right. Well, it's not just that, but this is also different because before it was strangers from not her hometown who didn't know her or her family. And right. this time her secret doesn't stay with her. It goes back with the old trader families. Yep. And she's telling herself head up, no tears, no anger, dignity and pride. So she approaches and it is Tommy. Tommy Tanira. What is with these weird, almost normal names? Tommy <laughs> and Greg instead of Grig. And Ophelia here is, I don't know, talking back to the captain a little bit, reprimanding him a little bit almost, it sounds like. Saying, and you, Tommy Tanira, are turning into a cranky old curmudgeon with no sense of adventure left to you. Obviously trying to argue for some side that we don't really hear because we're coming into the middle of this conversation. She kind of follows that up, pointing out to Greg that, yeah, he has no sense of humor either. And Althea is listening to this and thinking what Greg Tanira thought of her now, her form, his former dance partner. Because obviously she knows that they've been discussing her and the secret that Ophelia had, quote unquote, promised to keep. <laughs> Well, she didn't promise to keep it. She, yeah, I know. That's why I yeah. said quotes. <laughs> she approaches, says, reporting, sir. Captain Tanira says, indeed. You know what this is about, don't you? She says, I'm afraid so, sir. And the captain replies that we've discussed this, Greg and I, and Ophelia has had her say, and more than her say, as is usual. I intend this for your best, young woman. Gather all your things. Greg will give you some coin and escort you ashore. There's a rooming house on Clamshell Street. It's clean. He'll see you safely there. Sir, Althea conceded hopelessly. At least he wasn't shouting angrily at her. By keeping his dignity, he'd allowed her to keep hers. 
For that, she was grateful. But Ophelia's betrayal of her trust still stung. She looked past him to where Ophelia regarded her sheepishly over one round shoulder. I asked you not to give me away, she rebuked her softly. She studied the figurehead's face. I can't believe you did this to me. Oh, not fair, my dear, not fair at all, Ophelia protested earnestly. I warned you that you couldn't expect me to keep such a secret from my captain, and I also told you I'd try to find a way for you to stay aboard if you wished to, under your own name. Now how was I to do that without telling him what your real name was? Ophelia turned her attention to her captain. Tell me you're enjoying this. Shame on you. Tell her the rest now. Rest right now. The poor girl thinks you mean to maroon her here. Obviously there's a little switcheroo there where Captain Tanira is leading up like, yeah, yeah, we'll have to put you ashore. It's for your best. It's for your own good. There's a nice rooming house here. And then pauses. Right. Not even just pauses, just ends the sentence there and waits to see what happens. So (laughs) he clearly has just as much of a sense of humor as his boat. Yes, exactly. But the real plan is to put her ashore, clean her up, and then bring her aboard of like, oh, hey, this is Elthea Vestrit that we found in this city. We're just bringing her home now. And so she can go back on board the ship as herself. And Greg is going to have a toothache, and she's going to be the first mate on the rest of the voyage back. Right. And I think this part is done because Ophelia has told Tommy all of the details of I would assume Althea's so. situation. Yeah. Because she did say that she was going to try to help Althea get her ship back. They, they do discuss about how Captain Tanira doesn't really want to stand in front of the Traders Council, but if worse comes to worse, he would. Right. Yeah. So I think this was the idea that came forward to try to get her the ship's ticket that she needs because that was her original goal, right? That was her original plan was to get a ship's ticket in a position where she could prove that she could sail and she could show it to Kyle and then Kyle would have to stand by his word. And if he didn't, then she could take him to court. Right. So this is the best case scenario for her to be able to do that and not involve other families more than him maybe coming forward to say, yes, she worked on my ship and yes, she did a good job, which actually is really good. And it also kind of makes me think a little bit about Brashen's sense of you can't ask any of the families for help at all. And I really wonder if she could have asked people for help. Possibly. But Brashen is just so jaded that that's obvious. And he was drunk, too, when he said right. that. But that's obviously going to be his right recommendation because he tried. Right. And I think it goes back to they are coming from different posi- positions. Yeah. Brashen got kicked out because he was a gambling, like he gambling, lying, doing drugs, like putting his family into debt. That was why he was kicked out of his home, as far as we know. So, of course, nobody's going to give him a job on their ship. That's his reputation. Also, it kind of feels like there's a good reason morally to have kicked him out. So they're not going to go against his father. Whereas Althea, I think, had a better chance of getting help because there was that shift in power. Nobody's really loyal to to Kyle, right? Like Kyle doesn't have that standing that Efren did. And sure, it might be a little awkward, but is it really going against the Vestrit family if the matriarch, Ronica, doesn't care? You know, so I, I think there was a lot more wiggle room for her. But because Brashen was her point of reference of what to do, it really backed her into more of a corner than she needed to be. Yeah, I I mean, I do agree with you a little bit, but I still think that she would have been turned down because initially when she first got the news, she was wanted to get help. She wanted to talk to people, get a berth on a ship, whatever, whatever. I still think Brashen's advice there was solid. I still think that all the families would be like, no, the Vestrits as a family, including the old captain, chose this one. We're not going to help out somebody and jeopardize any trading relationships or anything like that. But with the experience that she's been through and the angle that she took, she didn't specifically work this angle. Althea didn't like to get into a live ship's good graces, but I think because she earned sympathy from Ophelia first and the live ship was able to help convince, Mm. 
that is really what got her in there as like, yep, we'll definitely help you out for this. Because Ophelia does say that that it was you can't imagine how hard it was for me to persuade Tommy. Greg was easy, of course. Greg's always easy, aren't you, my lamb? Which I think is a really funny line anyways. <laughs> but And we know that Ophelia does ex- exaggerate and things like that. But I do think it's because she had the live ship on her side. Fair so, enough. So if she did what Ophelia said mm-hmm. in that last conversation and talked to the live ships, I think she would have been able to have that leverage. But just doing what she was planning on doing and what Brashen spoke out against of approaching captains and being like, hey, can I be a sailor? Mm-hmm. I don't think that would have worked. Maybe you're right. I don't know. I think this, though, does point to the fact that there was more wiggle room than thought, though. At the very least. <laughs> so, of course, Althea is very happy and very pleased at this turn of events. She's very incredulous at this news. It says, oh, how can I thank you? And Captain Tanira says, you can thank me by doing a damn good job so that no one says I'm daft to have taken you on, and you can keep it to yourself forever that you ever shipped aboard the Ophelia as a boy and I didn't know it. He rounded abruptly on his figurehead. And I expect you to keep your word on that as well, you old busybody. Not a word of this to anyone, man or live ship. Why, Tommy, how can you doubt me? Ophelia demanded. She rolled her eyes and laid a hand over her heart as if stricken. Then she tipped a showy wink to Althea. Greg choked and the captain whirled on him. Stop your sniggering, pup. You'll be as much a laughing stock as I if this gets out. I'm not laughing, sir, Greg lied merrily. I'm just looking forward to the prospect of reading and lazing all the way from here to Bingtown. So I, I wanted to read that aloud and pause on that really quickly because we talked about how the captain of the Reaper was so upset that a woman shipped on board without him knowing. Right. right. We have and we had a discussion about that. And yes, that captain has issues <laughs> and it was very sexist as well and had old ideas and superstitious ideas of, you know, bad luck that women bring on board, whatever. Right. But it seems that Captain Tunira has kind of the same sentiment. And I really think hearing this second opinion, it stems from things happened that were so drastic that were not of the captain's knowledge. And that's where the problem comes in. Because the captain's supposed to know everything. Right. No, I definitely think that's fair. I think... I think the difference... Because obviously there is that sense of, like you said, the captain didn't know something big happened. Like the captain was taken advantage of in some way and that looks bad. And so obviously that's not a great feeling. And I don't fault either captain for being affronted by that. I think that's a natural reaction. However, I think where it differs or why it feels, I guess, more okay. I still am not fully okay with it, but... It feels more okay in Captain Tanira's response is that he is just, I think he's coming more of a place from embarrassment of like, oh yeah, they're coming from different places for sure. Yeah. One sexist and one not. Well, (laughs) I don't even know that it's not sexist maybe, but it's just, you know, like he, he knew Althea in real life and should have been able to recognize her. Like this random captain had no idea. He doesn't spend time in Bingtown society. He doesn't know what Althea looks like, probably. So I think there's like that different layer of there's no way the other captain would have known. It's a perfect dupe, so to say. Whereas Tomi Tamira has more of that. How could you not know somebody that you are family friends with was on your board pretending to be a different gender? And, like, wouldn't it be obvious to tell it's a girl? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. But, yeah, so who knows? I don't know. Definitely coming from different places, but it does it does emphasize the fact that there is more to just it being about her being a woman pretending to be a man, and they, they accidentally let a woman on board. It's more about the humiliation of not knowing that something was off under their noses. Yeah, I agree. And so they kind of talk about plans a little bit here. And Althea says, well, it sounds good. Like, I can do that. I can go shopping in the market for my sister as Athel. 
and then bring those gifts back to the uh, the inn, get changed with all of those gifts, and then emerge as Elthea Vestrit. Unnoticed, I hope, she adds. Captain Sneer says, well, let's hope it all goes that simply. And Greg uh, is going to escort her down there. But there's one thing before he departs that he wants to bring up and talk about. Captain Sneera says, Ophelia has told us about your situation with your ship. If I may be bold, young lady, I advise you to keep it a family matter. Oh, I'll vouch for you if you prove yourself to me. I'll give you a ship's ticket with a mate's stamp on it if you perform well. I'll even stand beside you in Trader's Council and take your part if need be, but I'd rather not. Vestrit family business should be settled behind Vestrit doors. I knew your father, not well, but well enough to know that's how he'd prefer it. I will if I can, sir, Althea replied gravely. I'd prefer it that way myself. But if it comes down to it, I'll do whatever I must to regain my ship. I knew she'd say that, Greg crowed. He and Ophelia exchanged triumphant glances. And Ophelia adds, I knew your great-grandmother. You'd take a lot of your looks from her and your spirit. She'd want you to have her ship. Now there was a woman who knew how to sail. I remember the day she first brought the Vivacia into Bingtown Harbor. There's even a notation about it in my log for that day, if you'd ever care to see it. Anyway, the breeze was fresh and... Not now, Captain Tanira chided Ophelia. I've reasons for asking you to keep Vestrit family business in your family. Selfish reasons. I don't want to be seen as siding with one traitor against another. When Althea looked puzzled, Tanira shook his head. You've been away from Bingtown for a while. Things are heating up there. It's no time for traitor against traitor problems. Althea adds, like, yeah, I know. The new traitors are a big issue. And he's like, no, uh, that's not it. <laughs> I fear worse is to come. I've got word from Jamalia City itself that the fool of a boy satrap has hired Chalcedian mercenaries as privateers to patrol the inside passage. And the word that he's got is that he's given them free, given them right to stop in Bingtown for waters and supplies free of charge. And Althea adds on, we've never allowed armed Chalcedian ships into Bingtown Harbor, only trading vessels. And Captain Tanira says, you catch on quick, girl. My guess is that we still won't. It will be interesting to see how the new traders ally. So... Very interesting conversation here. One, Ophelia chiming in and saying, you know, I knew your great-grandmother. Please, Captain Tanira, don't stop her there. I wanted to hear a little bit more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> more history. It'd be fun. Mm-hmm. It'd be nice. But also we get an update on politics in there because most of the things that we've been focused on in the Vestrit household have been Vestrit household things. Right. Mostly centered around Malta. Yeah. And that's not concerned with the greater politics, which heavily impacts the second and the third books in particular in this trilogy. Yeah, well, what's happening with Malta is important, and it is kind of affected by politics in a certain way. There's also just the fact that we don't get any time where they're focusing on the other problems because Malta has become such a big problem in the family, it seems. So, yeah, we're definitely missing out on that front, so it's good to hear some of the stuff that we missed both from not being in Veronica and Kefria's head to see their point of view very recently and from the characters we are with not really being involved with what's going on in the background political stuff. Yeah. It's definitely interesting when you think about it in comparison to the Fitz trilogy we just did before where the politics is a little, it's still, I guess, politics in, in Fitz's life is background but he is directly involved so we know a lot more about what's going on as it's happening i feel like whereas in these books it is a major thing but it's even more background because it's not the main struggle of the characters that we're reading right yeah and the way that it's set up here is we got hints before about chelsea and patrol ships looking for pirates hired by the satrap And here we have confirmation that, yes, they are being hired, and also they can stop in Bingtown for free for water and supplies. And Captain Tanira is like, you catch on quick, Althea. 
We've never allowed armed ships from Chalcid into our harbor, and I don't think we'll start now. Who knows where the new traders will ally with this? So there are already sentiments of war, of blockading their harbor and not allowing these Chalcidian warships who are supposed to be quote-unquote helping <laughs> patrol these seas, not allowing them into Bingtown at all. Right, and it does give that background of why it's such a big deal. I mean, obviously, it would send off red flags of, hey, we're giving Chalcedians free stuff, when clearly we know Chalcedians are not well-liked in Bingtown, but it's not just that they're giving Chalcedians free stuff. It's that they're now being almost forced to allow these armed people into their location, where I think... Chalcedians want to take over. So Right, they're really, not on good terms. No, it's it's really interesting too to see the satrap allow this because it kind of seems like he's okaying them taking over the lands. I it's very it's like a very nuanced thing of I kind of feel like this is almost permission from the satrap of okay, Chalced, you guys are giving me drugs. Go ahead and take the land. I don't care. The people not, probably not won't quite, but it's they not might, there yeah. yet, but like that's probably another step. The first steps to it, yeah. Yeah. So definitely some interesting things going on. And I kind of wish we got more of the intrigue of that in the, these series, or at least in this first series, to get more of a background, to understand it a little bit better. But this is all we have to go on. So. There's a lot of politics later with Cirilla, so. Yeah. We get more of our fill later. Yes, but I do want to go back a little bit because we kind of just skimmed over the whole... Keep Vestrit family fa uh, yeah. stuff vest in the Vestrit family. So obviously the reason that he's doing this, like he just said, there's bigger political things going on and it's not a good time to be infighting. But I think it's really interesting that there is this view that this problem is should be kept in the Vestrit family. And I just want to get your point of view on why you think that that is so big in their culture of this problem that can only be solved by going through the, their legal system should be kept out of the legal system because it's a family matter. Well, because he says he's thinking that it can't only be solved by the legal system, right? Mm -hmm. He's hoping that it can be solved behind closed doors because one, they're big on appearances as we've talked about before. So keeping it, behind closed doors and not airing out your dirty laundry allows everybody to save face. And two, I think it is primarily about the culture right now, because as we know later, the Vestrit family is looked on as traitors because they're friends with Devad Restart. Right. So it's not a good time to be picking sides, I guess, or... Even their familiarity with them probably has rumblings underneath in trader society of like, well, Restart really likes the new traders and he's voting for the satrap to just pay us off and not honor any of our past deals. Just give us money and we'll be good. And that value, that those ideas are not very well perceived right. in, in trader society, I don't think. So... I just think it's a lot more tumultuous than we have seen with the Vestrits. That's fair. Yeah, I think this whole society kind of, or this whole problem going on right now really highlights the flaws of the society and the the rules that they have created. I mean, especially if you look at Devad, there wasn't really any support system put in place for him and he was expected to just figure things out on his own after his entire family died. And I think having this, this societal view of it's your problem, anything that goes wrong with your family, that's your problem. You need to fix it. None of these family, families are on amazing terms. This isn't like a village type family where if somebody's down, you go and bake them bread, you know, like <laughs> you're not making meals for widowers. It just doesn't feel like their society has support for people who need help because it is viewed so much as an individual society. 
At least the trader portion of it. Right. At least from what we're seeing from the traders. And I think that opens up opportunity for corruption. Like Devad, who is on his own, it's just him now. I'm sure it's really hard for him to continue running a business because it seemed like his wife was the one doing everything from what we know. So Mm. she was keeping the house in yeah. Order. She was ordering everything. She was making sure they looked in style. Sure. Yeah. That, that stuff. But Ronica does say that he was a very shrewd trader as well. Like he is good at negotiating and doing the trading part. He just is a mess in his personal life. Right. But for whatever reason, he stopped doing trading, at least from what it seems. Right. I mean, he still is. He's brokering deals in between the new traders and the, uh, the old traders. Like that's, that's what his, thing is now he's dealing with slaves as well with right but is he like sailing ships no i don't think he was ever like a a captain okay he just like a merchant lord okay basically you know okay well then never mind yeah so i I think he has he hires out ships or he has ships or something but his servants don't like him he's always a mess nothing is repaired in his house He's just not well regarded at all because he doesn't have any tact in social situations. Yeah. No one's there to tell him to buy a different shirt. (laughs) Right. Or to help in that way. Yeah. I think he's just very abrasive and oblivious. Yeah. I think especially in a society like this where there isn't going to be help from other people And then you have these new traders who are coming in and letting you be part of their society and they don't dislike you for your shrewdness. I think that makes them feel more, you know, at ease and that's opening that door. And I'm sure he's not the only one who is feeling ostracized in the society where there's this heavy need to seem put together and perfect all the time and you can't really ask for help. Just thoughts. So Ophelia interrupts Tommy talking about these politics things and says later, later, we'll have time for that later. And then shoes them out with Greg walking Athel to the roomy house. So they walk in silence because Althea says she doesn't really know what to say. And he seemed shy as well. And eventually they came to the door of the rooming house and Greg halts. Says, well, here we are. Awkwardly, he hesitated as if about to say more. Althea resolved to put him at ease. Can I buy you a beer, she offered, gesturing to the tavern across the street. He glanced at it, and his blue eyes were wide as they came back to hers. I don't think I'd be comfortable, he said honestly. Besides, my father would skin me if I took a lady in a place like that. After a moment, he added, but thank you. He didn't move. Althea ducked her head to hide her smile. Well... Good night, then. Yes, he shuffled his feet, then hitched up his trousers. Uh, I'm supposed to meet you tomorrow and bring you back to the ship. As if it's by chance, as Ophelia put it. He looked down at his feet. I don't want to look all over town for you. Shall we meet somewhere? His eyes came up to her face again. That would be a good idea, she said quietly. Where do you suggest? He looked away. There's a place just down the street from here, he pointed through the darkness. Eldoys. They make chowder and fresh bread there. It's very good. We could meet there. I'd buy you dinner and you could tell me your adventures since you left Bingtown. His eyes came back to her face and he managed to smile. Or since we last danced together. So he had recalled that. She returned his smile. He had a good face, open and honest. She thought of what she had seen of him, especially him and his father and Ophelia together. The fondness and ease that existed among them made her suddenly hunger for such things as simple jokes and companionable times. When she smiled back at him, his grin widened before he looked away. I'll meet you there tomorrow afternoon, she agreed easily. Good. Good then, that's settled. Good night then. Almost hastily, he turned away from her. He gave another hitch to his trousers and then shifted his cap to the back of his head. She smiled as she watched him walk away. He had a jaunty sailor's roll to his gait. She recalled now that he'd been a very good dancer. So we get a little bit of Greg Tanira. 
Yeah. A little bit of a, an awkward boy who is still attracted to the, the partner he had at a dance a long time ago. Doesn't really know how to ask her to dinner, even though it's part of a plan that they have to do. <laughs> yeah. He's a sweet kid. Um, I say that he's probably technically older than me. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe we're around the same age. <laughs> no, I, I think he's probably just a couple years older than Althea. So probably like 21. Okay. So he's a kid. <laughs> I can say that. <laughs> um, no, I think he's really sweet. And I love that Greg is so fun and carefree most of the time. He really knows how to laugh and joke. I think in a perfect scenario, Brashen doesn't exist. I would definitely be wanting Althea to get with Greg. But I also think that Greg isn't quite as advanced on his views on like a woman's place as I would love him to be. Although I think he does mention like next book when they're talking about if they had a relationship how she could bring their babies aboard. Like she could stay aboard the ship with him. She just could never captain. And so like he's leaps and bounds above most of the men that are in her society and in her time period. I think he does really well at being that like humorous person for her. But I think she needs somebody a little bit more serious to bring her down because she's already somebody in the clouds, you know? Yeah. yeah. So... I don't know. I really like him. I think he's really sweet and he means well. Well, we move on to Brashen himself right after Althea is kind of watching Greg walk away and smiling. Yeah, I don't know. I can't tell here if she's like trying to convince herself that she's attractive. Like it kind of feels to me like. She is like, I love the atmosphere of the ship. I love being on a live ship. I like being in a place where the family is whole and friendly and they like each other. And I want that. And so I'm just going to use that as like a, well, it wouldn't be so bad to be part of this family. He's cute. He was a good dancer. Sure. And she's like trying to convince herself that she likes this life, you know, or if she like actually does have a little bit of a crush on Greg. Maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. Can be both. I suppose. But yes, we leave them there with her getting to spend the night in a nice inn. And Brashen is sitting in a dingy tavern. (laughs) With a drunkard that is somebody on his ship. Yes. Tarlock is his name. And he says, you know something? I know you. I'm sure I know you. Not surprising. I'm only the mate on your ship. Brashen told him disgustedly. He swiveled in his seat so he didn't have to face the seaman. Tarlock didn't take the hint. No, no, I mean, yeah, that's true. That's true. You're made on the spring eve. But I knew you before that. Way before that. Brashen didn't turn to face him. And he's lifting his mug to drink from it so he doesn't have to really respond. As if he hadn't noticed that Tarlock had joined him at the table. He'd been alone at the tavern table before the grizzled old sot had sought him out. He'd wanted to be alone. This was the first port the Spring Eve had made since they'd left Candletown, and Brashen had wanted time to think, because the Spring Eve is basically exactly what he thought it was going to be. They are buying and selling illicit goods, probably from from pirates. Right. And most of the crew aboard her had been with her for some time and knew their tasks well enough. So the task itself, the job itself, is relatively easy and much easier than he had aboard previous jobs. And he also talks a little bit about how even though the sailors know what they're doing, there has still been a little bit of trouble with them trying to test his limits and see if he's really in in charge and how this is just kind of how it is in the sailing world, especially when it's not somebody in your own ranks rising to a new position. It's somebody from the outside coming in. So he talks about how it isn't even that bad. He's had to kind of back up some of his threats and it's more about being able to throw a punch and survive getting punched, which he can. And that's not really the problem. It's more, what it is that they're 
trading in that's a problem. Yeah, because they're following the broken shoreline from island to island, skirting and sometimes venturing into what was acknowledged as pirate territory. And it says this town was typical. It shouldn't really exist for any reason. It was little more than a wharf and a handful of warehouses on a scummy slough. A couple of taverns housed, a few rundown whores, a scatter of hovels marred the hillside behind the taverns. So basically nothing here except some warehouses and a place to stop. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. It's a little, little sketchy. Yeah. To Brashen's eye, there's no reason it should exist, which is how you can tell it's probably a pirate thing. <laughs> <laughs> he says he spent the whole afternoon with a sword hanging at his belt and a truncheon in his hand and been watching his captain's back standing guard behind him as he sat at a table in one of those warehouses. Between his captain's feet was a chest of coins, and three of the most suspicious sea dogs Brashen had ever encountered brought out merchandise samples a bit at a time, and prices were negotiated. The variety and condition betrayed the source of their wares, and Brashen had felt a surge of disgust within himself when the captain had turned to ask his opinion on some blood-splattered but heavily illustrated manuscripts. How much are they? the captain demanded. Brashen had pushed aside a squirming memory. Not worth dying for, he said dryly. So this is kind of what he thought it was going to be and hoping against hope that it wasn't going to be this. But once again, as we find out as first time readers, if you're going through this chapter, once again, he is back in the pirate trade. Right. And his big qualms with this job as it stands isn't necessarily the goods that they're trading in. It's the fact that he didn't really expect to have to examine the goods that have a dead man's blood on them. Like he was thinking that he could just pretend that it wasn't as bad as it is, but now he's coming face to face with it every time. It's a little bit worse than he thought, but he's not that surprised about it. So we're jumping back to the present with Tarlock here, and Tarlock, the drunken sailor, is saying, tell you what, I'll offer a name. You recall it, you tip me a wink, and we'll say no more about it. And Brashen is still trying to brush him off and and push him away, saying, how about you shut up right now and stop bothering me, and I don't black both your eyes. Now is that any way to talk to an old shipmate? Tarlock whined. The man was too drunk for his own good, too drunk to be effectively threatened. Not drunk enough to pass out, but that, perhaps, Brashen could remedy. So he changes tactics, becomes all buddy-buddy, orders some good rum, and Tarlock's like, oh yeah, that's great, that's a bit more like it. He's drinking more with Brashen, displaying the remaining, uh, the remainder of his teeth, saying, thought I recognized you when you first come aboard, I did. Been a long time, though. What's it been? Let's see. Ten years? Ten years ago aboard the Hope? The despair. This is in Brashen's head. Me, you mean? Ten years ago? You're a mistaken man. Ten years ago, I was just a lad. Just a lad. Right? That you were. That's what made me uncertain at first. You didn't have a whisker to your chin then. No, that I didn't, Brashen agreed affably. So he's urging Tarlock to drink more rum and get him drunk and hopefully make him pass out. Right. Um, quick timeline question. Do we know what age Brashen was kicked out of his house? About 14 or so. So that puts him at like 24 now? I think he was aboard a different ship first, and that ship got taken over by pirates. Mm -hmm. So I think he's probably maybe a couple years older than that. Not much. So like but I think 26, 25, 26, okay. maybe 27. 27 at the most, we'll say. Yeah, that's that's would be my guess. Okay. I th- I don't think he would be, yeah, I well, don't think he would be older than that for sure. Yeah. And I still kind of hesitate to say 27. But yeah, because 17 maybe. feels like too old to not have any whiskers on your face. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> well, that was me when I was yeah. 17, so I don't know. About <laughs> that's you now. <laughs> So, so yeah, I guess everybody's different, but um, I don't know. I feel like 14, 15 is a better, that feels more like clean shaven boy because he's not shaving yet. 
kind of age, but I also am not a boy and did not go through male puberty. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So Brashen is tipping some more rum into both their glasses, cheersing, saying here's to shipmates old and new, drinking together. And then Tarlock points a finger at Brashen and says, child of the wind, he said, and grinned his gap tooth smile. I'm right, ain't I? About what? Brashen asked him lazily. He watched the man through narrowed eyes as he took a slow sip of his own rum. Tarlock followed his example with another swallow of his. Aw, oh, come on, Tarlick wheezed after a moment. You were on the child of wind when we t- overtook her. Little whip of a kid you was, spitting and scratching like a cat when you hauled up you out of the rigging. Didn't have so much as a knife to defend yourself, but you fought right up until you dropped. Child of the wind. Can't say as I recall her, Tarlock. Brashen put a note of warning in his voice. You're not going to tell me you were a pirate, are you? The man was either too stupid or too drunk to deny it. Hey, weren't we all? Look around you, man. Think there's a man in this room hasn't freebooted a bit? Nah. He leaned forward across the table, suddenly confidential. He wasn't too slow to sign the articles once you had a blade at your ribs. But as I recall, that name you went by wasn't Brash and Trell of Bingtown. I've been trying to member, he slurred. He leaned heavily on the table and set his head down on one of his arms. Can't remember what you said it was, but I recall what we called you. Weasel. Because you was so skinny and so fast. The man's eyes sagged shut. He drew a deep, heavy breath that emerged as a, sor- as a snore. So we learn a little bit more about Brashen's past here. He was aboard a, uh, a different ship. Pirates overtook that ship and forced him on penalty of death to sign on as a pirate. Yes. And he went by a fake name when that happened. And it was at least 10 years ago. And no one cared because they called him Weasel instead. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So definitely a sadder background from Brashen. Like you already, especially if you're first time through, you know that things were, had to have been not great, but That just makes it worse. And you know what? I think I was unfair earlier because I said Brashen was kicked out of his family for using drugs. And I am pretty sure that's not true. He didn't use drugs until he became a pirate. Yeah. Well, he might have had some Sindon, things like that. But uh, it was mostly gambling and I think Mm -hmm. carousing and acting rowdy and not as befit a son of a traitor. Right. Boys will be boying. (laughs) In the worst oh, case possible. Literally yeah. the worst meaning of that, yeah. So, yeah. So he gets Tarlock drunk here. Mm-hmm. His former shipmate. And, and the idea was that Tarlock would hopefully miss the ship. So because Tarlock has figured it out, he leaves the bottle of rum that he bought already with Tarlock, which kind of stings him a little bit because, you know, it's nice rum and he would like to keep it. But the idea is Tarlock is going to sleep. They're leaving first thing in the morning. So hopefully he oversleeps. And if he doesn't, hopefully he wakes up and sees the drink in his arm and takes his time going Because he wants a little bit more to drink hair of the dog style. So either way, he's hoping this is the last he sees of Tarlock. Yeah, exactly. He really had nothing against the man, except that he reminded Brashen of a time he'd sooner forget. Weasel, he thought to himself as he left the tavern and emerged into the chill fog of the early evening. I'm not Weasel anymore. As if to convince himself, he took a stick of Sindon from his pocket and snapped the end off in his mouth. It was probably the best quality of the drug he'd ever known, and it had been part of the good, parting goodwill gift to him from the freebooters they dealt with earlier in the day. Free. No, he wasn't Weasel anymore, he refre- reflected wryly as he headed back toward the dock in the spring eve. Poor Weasel never had Sindon like this. So it's a very interesting sentiment that he has because he knows he's basically returned back to that same life as Weasel, except... Poor Weasel never had Sindon of that quality before. Right. So he's wryly reflecting on that. Like, yeah, I'm not Weasel anymore, except I basically am. Yeah. Basically just reverted back to what I had to do to survive. 
Rashin once again feeling a little bit down about himself, but also happy because he has good quality Sindan. <laughs> Trying to find comfort in what he can. And yeah, so that's where we leave off with Rashin. And there's that hint of we're going to find out more about his past and what kind of shady shenanigans he got into. Um, I also, just off topic quick, isn't Tarlock the name of the ship that is like the first ever live ship? That's Tarman. Oh, okay, okay. Because the whole time I'm reading this, I'm like, it's so weird that she reused the name, but she didn't. There's a couple people that have reused names in the series. Yeah. Which happens. Yeah, no, totally. But Tarlock is a little bit more yeah, inconsequential <laughs> than Tarman. True. Well, thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this chapter. We only have two more after this, and we finish mm-hmm. out Ship of Magic. Yeah. So if you have thoughts about that or thoughts about the book as a whole, because we'll be talking about those in uh, upcoming weeks here, uh, the rest of this book, and as a recap, please let us know. You can email us at isfitshappy at gmail.com, or you can message us or comment on any of our posts at isfitshappy at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or on our YouTube videos. We look forward to hearing what you guys have to say next week. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the stuff that you guys brought to our attention this week. Well, I guess not just this week, but... (laughs) Our recording schedule means it's not this week, but effectively this week (laughs) (laughs) this week as of recording yes (laughs) when you guys hear this it'll be a couple weeks off so one of the first things i want to talk about is actually not something from the past something that's already happened in this series but something to look forward to or look out for going forward yeah and that is a message we got from Ant on Instagram talking about how they're currently reading the Rainwild Chronicles. And according to that series, it takes ingested blood and maybe perhaps also a scale of or some type of ingestion of some yes. part of the dragon, basically. Yeah, to become an elderling. That's what makes an elderling is this sharing of parts from a dragon to yeah. a human. And so they were one aunt was wondering does do Malta and Rain and Selden do this and is there any evidence that they do this because they're kind of the first elderlings? Right. So we should be on the lookout to see if they do that at all or if that's Yeah, and yeah. I don't think technically Rain is an elderling in the same sense that Malta or Selden are because he's already had changes. I, I think Tintaglia maybe guides him, but he's already grown up with those changes and not have any influence. Yeah. I don't know. Or maybe he's already been in been influenced by her because he's visited those cities. Yeah. I'm wondering if what happens with the Rainwild people with the knowledge that later it's explained that there is a specific process to become an elderling, which implies that there's some sort of choosing on the dragon's part. I wonder if this means that all the people who live in the Rainwilds, they are failed elderlings because they haven't been accepted by a dragon, but they have been in close enough proximity to be changed. And I think there, I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure in the Rainwild Chronicles, there is talk about how the cities were made, like the old elderling cities were made where people who weren't chosen by the dragons or people who didn't want to be affected by the dragons could live outside of the limits, but still be part of the society. Yeah, there. Were, I mean, there were elderlings and there were people who were just living in the city as mm-hmm. well. But then there's also that like weird, the, there's like a talk about how some of the dragons were corrupted, I guess, quote unquote, by too much present or too much time spent with humans. Right. And there's not a ton of talk about the human version of that because dragons probably don't care about what happens to humans outside of their, the humans that they like. Well, it's what we see 
I mean, we have evidence of that. Yeah. And so I don't know. I think that's really interesting that that could be why. Mm. I, I totally agree with that line of thought. I don't agree that everyone living in the Rainwilds is like a failed otherling or anything like that. Because I, I think it's just based on what you were talking about in the second half of that comment. Yeah. How Robin Hobb really, really dives into and lives in a world and writes in this world where proximity to things can share their essences. Mm-hmm. The longer you are by something, the more those two beings mingle and create something new. We see it with Fitz and Night Eyes. We see it with Fitz and the Fool. You know, there's all these different things. And we have evidence of that in the magic system with the Rainwild people who are around all of these dragon cocoons and are in proximity all the time. Right. And are born with this quote unquote curse. And we also see it with the others who were born of dragons who were around humans too much. It's just that, that mingling of things, you know? Right. No, it's definitely an interesting thought process. And I think it's something to look out for, out for, for sure, for Selden and Malta. Yes. I just don't know about Rain specifically. I don't think it's fair to say that Rain isn't an elderling because... That's true. Tatangula does acknowledge him. Yeah, that's that's fair. And... I just don't think he's the same as Malta and Selden, which is why, like, his changes have already started taking place, you know? So then Timera and that group are also in his category because they know. already have growths? I, I'm not saying that they're not elderlings. I'm just saying that specifically... because. One of the examples that I'm thinking of from the Rainwild Chronicles is Cedric. He's from Bingtown and he gets blood on his lips and he from dragons mm-hmm. and he becomes an elderling after that. That's also another person who ingested something. So my focus is going to be on Malta and Selden of how their transformations take place. If they ingest anything from the dragons, etc. Right. Why wouldn't you also be watching to see if Rain does that? Because his changes have already happened. But he changes Tint- more. Yeah, Tintagula can guide them and can change them more, but I think she already has a connection with that. Because of the essences being mingled for so long since he was born, mm-hmm. I think they, there's already some sort of connection or hold over everybody there. With Tintagula yeah, specifically. with dragons or Tintagula since she was in that city for so long. And he's been wandering around the city, like the sunken cities, you know? So I think there's already something there with Malta and Selden or with Cedric and the other dragon in uh, live or Rainwild. That's new connections that are being formed. So that's why I'm going to be focused on them to see if they ingest anything. Okay. I'm going to focus on all three. So. Okay. <laughs> but thank you, Ant, for uh, pointing that out and giving us something to look forward to and giving the group something to look forward to and look at going forward just in case we miss it. Next, we're going to talk about an email that we got from Jonas. And this email is about mostly Gantry and Kyle. (laughs) So in Jonas's email, he states that he agrees with Luke that Kyle wouldn't throw Wintro overboard. And obviously it's a possibility in extreme circumstances, but despite Kyle being a worm, I don't see him doing that to his own son. And that he's taking that information from the little bit of insight we get into Kyle when he admits to himself that he has a bit of regret for tattooing Wintro. And when it being Wintro's fault is Kyle's coping mechanism on handling the situation to make it to make the situation make sense without having to take the blame on himself, which isn't mature or good. And Jonas is not saying that it is, but <laughs> I thought I would also emphasize not a great way to go about living <laughs> right. your life, yeah. but somebody arguing that Kyle would not throw Wintro or overboard. Yeah. So thanks for the backup there. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I still feel like he maybe would, but, I like I think it's in there. I don't think I don't think it was created out of nothing, but I guess I would agree with the statement that it would have to take extreme circumstances outside of the serpent's control. So, I will give I will give you that. Thank you, Jonas. 
But also, Jonas talks about, I guess I only said Gantry and Kyle. There's also a section about She Who Remembers and some questions that Jonas had about how the She Who Remembers works. Is there ever a he who remembers? Is this a genetic thing? Is this just the way, because that's kind of like an alien species, it's just the way they work genetically? Is it like a one in 1,000? Are they specifically selecting one of the eggs to be a she who remembers? Kind of what the process is and how that works and how many she who remembers are there. Like, is this a one every generation or is this there's only supposed to be one at a time with the serpents that are out there total? To me, it kind of feels like it's. It's a genetic thing. To answer one of those, because there are no she who remembers in the ocean right now, because one is trapped on another island and one is vivacia. Mm -hmm. So there's no other ones. There's no other ones to lead the serpents anywhere. So to me, it, it speaks of a genetic thing where they weren't able to hatch. They were not able to become dragons. They were not able to lead their generations and therefore the whole species has been stuck in limbo, which also speaks to there being a limited amount either per generation or what have you, because those are the only two that we see and the whole species, as we know it, has been in stasis for who knows how long. So I, I'm i not sure of all those answers, but those are my guesses. Yeah, I think, I think it really depends on when the she who remembers who is a serpent right now was captured. Was this something that happened? I think a long time ago. Pre-calamity? Like, sorry to use Zelda mm. terms, <laughs> pre... No, uh, after. I think it would be after. So you think after all the dragons were trying to be killed off? Because yeah. if, let's say, if this was, like, really in the works for a while by the Whites, they captured her well before the natural disasters killed off the rest of the dragons, that could explain why there was another She Who Remembers that would have been hatched as an egg. If that makes sense, because in my mind, if there's only supposed to be one at a time, then the she who remembers like somehow magically the universe can tell there's not a she who remembers to guide. So another one was created. Yeah, I don't know. But also maybe that was supposed to be the time where she who remembers took everybody to be cocooned. And then disaster struck and she was captured afterwards. So there was already another she who remembered prepared to take over her place because she was supposed to be done. Not really sure. I think it's safe to say for another question answer, though, that it's always a she who remembers just thinking about the hierarchy of dragon culture and how it seems to be that the female dragons are more important and just kind of better respected, I guess. It seems like male dragons are below the female dragons. Like the female dra dragon pick the partners. They make the rules, it seems. I don't know. It just, I feel like dragons prefer women or like female dragons. So I would say that the she who remembers would be just women. Yeah. Or female, I guess it's females because they're not human, so it wouldn't be women. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's something. But otherwise, I'm not really sure. I think they're really good questions, and it's a really interesting thought process to dive into to try to figure out. We could theory craft all day, but yeah. not sure. Yeah, but great, great things to think on. Yeah. And then to find, uh, finish up Jonas's email, he also has a little bit about Gandry. And how he is, he can excuse the comment of calling Wintro filthy or saying that Wintro has no excuse to be filthy. So, in Jonas's mind, that's Gantry's way of taking responsibility of Wintro and because Kyle won't. And so it gives 
everyone on board knowledge that Gantry's in charge of Wintrow and that Wintrow has no excuse to be dirty now. And the look that he gives afterwards is kind of like a shame on you for not taking care of, like who treats a deckhand, let alone their own son this way. Right. Yeah. I agree with that. I think Gantry is just kind of like, all right, part of the crew, do what I can. Right. <laughs> That's all I know how to do. So clean yourself up, deckhand. What are you doing? Yeah. And I guess that's a better reading. And Jonas also makes a comment that he is, he's not like the best of people, but he is trying his best in a bad situation and he is a good man ultimately. And it's sad to think about what's happening to him next, like what happens to him after this. So definitely is a sad time. (laughs) Um, and I, I do, I would agree. I think after all this, the gantry was a somewhat good person that was led astray. Obviously he didn't make the best choices, but he's human. So of course he's not going to always be perfect. And it is really sad to know that that character does meet such an untimely death. Right. It just feels less deserved, I guess, than like, (laughs) you know, Oh my gosh, I can't even remember his name. Torg? Yes. It feels less deserved than someone like Torg. So thank you, Jonas, for bringing those comments and questions to our attention. Yeah, for sure. And finally, we have a couple comments on Facebook, primarily discussing and talking about Malta and her age to be married, around that discussion with Calwyn and Janie and Kefri and Ronica when they were all sitting down for tea. Right. So it's brought up by Irene that while it's gross in our day and age to think about a 14-year-old getting married, it doesn't seem that weird in this world. Irene points out that a 14-year-old can be disowned and forced to live by himself working as a sailor And Fitz was approximately 14 when he first begins having tasks as an assassin, which I actually think he might. Yeah, he was a little bit younger. So this is all kind of in the realm of what's normal for that age group. It's not like all the other 14 year olds have it better (laughs) and get to wait. It's kind of just how it is. And so in that, like, obviously in real life, not okay, gross. Yeah. Not advocating. But in this sense, in this time period, it's trying to be in. It feels fine because that it just like goes with the rest of the world. It's not like it's that weird. And Bastion does comment on that saying, personally, I feel 14 is quite generous for the fictional time period, considering the early ages at which medieval high nobility got married sometimes. Mary I of Scotland was already promised to someone when she was six months old and was supposed to marry him at her 10th. So, I mean, Bastion's saying, also saying, like, I don't condone that or anything, but Robin Hobb is kind of working within those confines, right? Right. And I, I agree with the sentiment. It does fit in with the narrative, with the book and everything. But also those medieval marriages were, yes, one, mostly for nobility of promising, and two, they weren't expected to bear children right away. Yeah. And that's the big thing that comes in for me at, with the Rainwilds because they die so quickly. They're like, yep, we're going to get married and have babies because that is real family wealth. That's like the only way we can measure wealth is if you have family who can survive. So that's where it's like, this is just really icky to yeah. me that comes in. But I totally get the arguments and the reasons and the explanations and what's going on in Janie's head of why this is okay. Yeah. And I think that's important too, Just because good context. Yeah. I think that's, what's important about it is that we weren't really giving enough context of Janie's point of view because we were kind of harping on the ickiness of it for lack of a better term, but it is good to have that reminder of, you know, this isn't, in this world, especially 14 is kind of viewed as 
a coming of age in some sense. Right. And think, when people are kind of treated as adults. I think it's about when Fitz had the man ceremony too, right? Or was that 15? I can't remember exactly when, but it was around that age. Yeah. Something like that. I don't know. 14, 15 or 16. Yeah. So, so definitely not that weird in the context. I mean, I guess we kind of touched on how it's not Janie. It's Callan says that she got married at 15. Yes. So we kind of touched on how obviously it's not that that weird. But yeah, apparently even 14 isn't necessarily that weird when you think about it in the context of the Mm -hmm. book. And speaking of Callan, Irene also commented on that section of the uh, of the episode and confirmed that Callan did say early on in the book that she was born in Bingtown. I know that we are having that discussion as well. Yes. So thank and, you, Irene, for that correction. Yes. And thank you for reminding us. That's when she and Ronica are talking when Ronica first says she can't pay, make the payment. Yep. The and first is worried about giving her grandchild up as payment when she says I was given and it was great. I went from Bingtown and it's fine. Yeah. So great. Thank you very much for that. I think we have one more comment on an episode on Facebook here. This is from episode 146. And Jonas comments on uh, the questions that you laid out, actually, for the Facebook post here. Right. So my question for episode 146, well, I had two, was what good is the live ships deciding to stand with their own if they won't tell any of the humans who could need their help to do so? Alternatively, why didn't they already stand up for their own when they saw how distressed Vivacia was before her first voyage? And that comes from the section where Ophelia is talking to Althea about how she can help, which we saw. How they have that pact with live ships so they don't repeat another paragon. Right. Yeah. And we saw a little bit of that help this episode. But Jonas actually points out that it seems like they didn't interfere because they thought it was Althea's choice to leave. And so that makes it sound as though both ship and partner are taken into account, which actually makes Jonas respect them more. And that's true. It's very measured response because the Vestrit family kept everything within the Vestrit family, right? Kyle was seen as taking over it. Yes, Althea stormed off into the into the city, but are the live ships going to know that? You know, like what's right. <laughs> yeah. They literally can't leave the Harbor. So, <laughs> right. And, and Ophelia thought that Althea gave it up willingly too. And there right. was a big scandal with them. Yeah. No. So I guess that is a good way to look at it as more of a respect thing because it's not just about the boat. It's not about, you know, the ship over everything. It's also the humans that they give respect to of saying, if you don't want to be there, we're not going to make you. But I also think that is like Wintro. It's a, you wouldn't want somebody who doesn't want to be on the ship to be there. Right. Right. So yeah, I don't know. So good point from Jonas and from everyone else who wrote in. So thank you all for giving us your point of view. Thanks so much. 